DIY and How Studios presents You must take the A train Vital Snob with Dave Whitaker Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts Music, culture, technology. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. And rock and roll. Now, let's drop the needle and start the show. I'm Dave Whitaker, and this is Vinyl Snob. I worked at Aquarius Records in San Francisco. So I started out working there, started managing it, and then eventually became the owner. That's Wendy Chin. Women owning record stores is not that uncommon, though you wouldn't know it by the reaction of many male customers. I'll be sitting behind the counter in our shop. It's pretty obvious who works there because it's so small. And I've had like a customer go to a male customer and ask where something is. And I'm like, I'm right here. I'm, I'm obviously working. That's Hannah Liu, co-owner of Contact Records in Oakland, California. On this episode, we take a look into the generally male-dominated record store industry with our story, Women in Vinyl. Plus, we welcome back Mike Lavella and take a trip to Reckless Records in Chicago. That's all coming up on Episode 10 of Vinyl Snob. Thank you for joining us for the voice version of this podcast. The extended music version of this program can be heard at VinylSnob.com. First, some vinyl news. A new pressing plant, Clampdown Record Pressing Inc. in Vancouver will begin pressing vinyl soon. It's the first pressing plant in that city in over 30 years. Entrepreneur and lead singer of the band Vicious Circles, Billy Bones, is behind the project. New pressing plants are rare, due to the fact that most of the equipment available dates back to the 1970s. The last full decade, record presses were manufactured. A company named Vinyl Technologies is changing that. Founded in 2015 with a plan to modernize the vinyl pressing industry and provide counseling as well as tech support for startups like Clampdown. According to Bones, they're selling the most technologically and ecologically advanced record pressing machines ever built. We've discovered a handful of pressing plants in various stages of startup around the world, and we will be featuring an in-depth look at these new pressing plants, the first in decades, in a future episode of Vinyl Snob. For our first story, we look at what has been mostly a male-dominated business from the beginning, the record store. In this episode, we talk with three women who own or have owned record stores and get their take in a piece we call Women in Vinyl. Producer Dana Berry has the story. Have you ever been at a record store holding a stack of vinyl, nervously glancing up at a counter where two sneering dudes are watching every move you make? They appear to whisper to each other whenever you pull out an album, prompting you to jettison the wham record you're buying as a joke. 
Hoping that Nielsen is still cool, you approach the Smirk twins who are drooling to pass judgment on your musical taste. That's my experience, and I'm a dude. Imagine if you're a woman in the same situation. On a recent rainy Saturday in downtown Oakland, I sat down with three Bay Area women who are not only avid vinyl collectors, they own or have owned record stores. Tracy Parker of Vamp Art and Music hosted us in her 19th Street store, comfortably surrounded by vintage clothes and vinyl. We were joined by Hannah Liu, who co-owns Contact Records in Oakland, and Wendy Chen, who owned the venerable Aquarius Records in San Francisco for 14 years. My name is Tracy Parker, co-owner of Vamp Records. We're here in downtown Oakland. We're celebrating our six-year anniversary this month. We combine our love of vintage vinyl with our love of vintage clothing and other things, as well as art. So our shop is kind of um, a little more of a lifestyle shop, but we love music so much and we love being able to share that with people. Hi, I'm Wendy Chen. For 14 years, starting in 1989 and going up to 2003, I worked at Aquarius Records in San Francisco. Um, Until it closed a couple of years ago, Aquarius was one of the oldest independent record stores in San Francisco. It was started in 1969 during the age of Aquarius. So I started out working there, started managing it, and then eventually became the owner and moved it to its, its last location in the Mission District of San Francisco. In 2003, I sold the store to a couple of employees of mine, and now I make art full time. My name's Hannah Liu, and I own Contact Records. We've been open only two and a half years, so I'm sort of the rookie here. We'd worked in music, and we're musicians, and we just had the opportunity to open a shop, so we jumped on it, and it's been really great. We get to do what we love and share what we're into with people, which is what we do anyway. So that's where they are now, but how did they get started? I first started collecting vinyl when my little sister and her friends used to steal my CDs, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to start collecting something big enough that they can't steal. So I started collecting vinyl. That's how it happened. I remember like when me and my husband Andrew met, I remember thinking, I have a pretty big collection for a girl. <laughs> and he also had a big record collection. A lot of us coming together had to do with us turning each other on to different bands. We were playing music for a long time before we worked in record stores. Everyone that works in a record store for years has the dream of opening their own shop. So. I think in the back of our minds, we're like, maybe one day we'll have our own shop, and then it ended up working out, so that was great. I always bought records. I bought records and I bought tapes because my family garage sailed a lot. I bought a lot of music that way. I always had a record player in my life, whether it was my parents or it was mine in my own room. You know, my older brother, who's five years older than me, he's always been a really huge influence to me as well, and he's a huge record collector. So I always say that when I go to see him, It's sort of like classes in session because he'll sit me down and pull out, do you know this? Do you know this? You have to know this. You have to know that. So all of these things that I might not have been exposed to had I just been digging for myself. Like I was really lucky to have a lot of mentors in my life to guide me and give me information and knowledge in that way. I really kind of embraced the world of college radio and I started noticing how much fun it is to look at album covers and it was one day when I was talking to the music director there and we were talking about Flipper and I referenced Subterranean because I had noticed that that was the label that they recorded it on and then I realized oh my god that organized part of my brain is just like noticing 
using labels and album titles and who played on the record. And I just really consider, especially the experience of looking at vinyl album covers where you can get all of that information. It's like a doorway into this like beautiful creative world. And so that was sort of my entry into that world was via college radio. The genesis of this interview was a conversation Tracy and I had about her experience as a woman behind the counter of a record store. So let's hear Tracy, Hannah, and Wendy tell us about their experiences and their perspective. For the first three and a half years or so, Fernando still worked on a full-time job, so he would come after work and hang out and play records. I was like, I'm holding it down. And then he walks in and people come and like, you know, somebody that I might have asked, do you need help? Can I help you? Can I suggest something to you? Oh, no, 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 I'm okay, I'm okay. Then they see him come in and they see him come to the desk and then they just like, oh, let me ask that, he must know. And I'm like, I just asked if you needed help. We used to go and sell it at the um, KOSF Rock and Swap, record swap meet. And just looking around that room and you see how many women are behind the tables, there's hardly any. And you see how many men are behind the tables as sellers and it's like such an imbalance of women as opposed to men. And I don't understand because I think that there's so many ladies out there that love music and love records. I think now, definitely in the last six years, a lot of things have changed as far as like respecting women that they're interested in playing records. And I would say that with the B-Side Brujas and the Chuita Vinyl Club, that those two groups of like all-female DJs, that they've sort of changed that um, dynamic a lot. And so I'm seeing that there's this younger generation of people who are respecting um, that there's more ladies involved with music and DJing and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I've had similar experiences as Tracy. We're like, I'll be sitting behind the counter in our shop. It's pretty obvious who works there because it's so small. And I've had like a customer go to a male customer and ask where something is. And I'm like, I'm right here. I'm, I'm obviously working. But I think that, that it's not unique to record stores. I think any area where there's entertainment, it's like it's always easier for men to insert themselves into the audience because most entertainment is sort of geared towards the male audience. For me, I'm really happy when I'm in the shop and like women come in and just people that wouldn't normally feel comfortable being in there and shopping and discovering things. I think that it's really important for me that all kinds of people feel comfortable engaging in that discovery. Music is also this like amorphous thing and anyone can enjoy it. So it's, it's really meant for everybody. There's such a wide range of voices in music and there should be that wide of a range in listenership. That's why it's great to have women at the helm. Yeah, I think with the subcultures that we've all referenced and the larger world of entertainment and historically male-dominated cultures and subcultures, one of the characteristics is this like hoarding of information, like I know more about my gear than you do kind of thing. Um, And I just always want to smash all that shit down. So the way that I addressed that in the record store was we reviewed every single record that came into the store because my attitude was that, you know, if you've never listened to Pavement before, where do you start? Which album should you start with? 
with. Um, you shouldn't have to be intimidated by the male clerk at the counter and be afraid to ask them. Like we wanted to make the record store as welcoming to women as possible. Um, and it can be very intimidating. So if you've got a review there, you can read and go, oh, okay, well, maybe Slanted and Enchanted is the first place where I should start here. And not only did that help everyone to feel comfortable in the record store, but it was also a form of information share in the same way that zines were doing that at the time, right? But we decided to be as direct as possible and review the records right there at the place where you can buy the record with the record in your hand. And then also it was information share in that me and my staff of eight different clerks, you know, one of us would review the record and then the, the other seven of us would know what that person who is the biggest blah blah fan in the store thought about the record. And so it became this sort of unified aesthetic that we developed as we reviewed everything. And so the store started to have an identity of itself in terms of what it loved and the music that we championed. And in, in the end, we only carried music that we loved. And so that was a nice thing too. I used to shop at Aquarius and I always really appreciated that, that you could go in and you could see for yourself. You didn't have to come in with like a preconceived knowledge of anything. You could listen on the little station. You could plug, this is like before everyone had iPhones busting out all the time. You could go on the station and look up what they had written about it and then you could listen to it. And I discovered so much music in that shop. That was a great spot to go. They did a great job. Good job. That makes me really happy to hear. If I were to say, like, what's the best experience, it would have to be that creation of of, um, of the community and the friendships and the family that you kind of um, gain by just being able to talk to people and share things that you love with them. There's so, so many. You guys did in-stores, too. We did in-stores. So, you know, getting to meet your heroes and then realizing that your heroes are, you're just befriending them and they're, you're just part of, become part of your social group was sort of a nice thing. You know, you spend so much time loving a record and then turning other people onto it and helping with that and playing that role and then getting to meet those amazing, amazing musicians was a, a big part of it seems to be a recurring theme that in these interviews, I find myself getting very jealous. Last year, Hannah and her husband went on a record-buying trip to Japan. First of all, in Japan, everyone just respects things more, objects, um, not women necessarily, but everything else. Um, <laughs> so you can find the same LPs you'd find here, but People haven't partied on them since the 60s. They're like in pristine condition with like all the inserts and maybe a ticket stub from the concert. So we went on whole days just in one shop, just nine hours of digging. It was insane. We were like lugging around suitcases of records all over Tokyo. Yeah, it was really fun. And you, you see records are kind of more of everyday culture than they are here where it's like more subcultural. Again, it's a predominantly male crowd and I was definitely the only woman in a lot of record stores that we were in. Though there were a lot of female clerks at a lot of shops, but it's more because the shops, you almost don't have to have a knowledge of, of music. You're just working in a, in a record shop. Like you were at like a, like a Target or something because there's just so many record stores. This crazy thing happened where we shipped ourselves 11 boxes of records, it was like over a thousand records, and five of the boxes showed up within a couple months. We sent them just on normal Japan posts on a ship. Literally nine months went by because our son was born and a week before he was born, they just miraculously showed up. The last record box showed up a week after he was born and he was actually conceived in Japan, made in Japan. So it was like this total like crazy thing where we were like, oh no, we're gonna go on maternity leave for six weeks. 
how are we gonna find records while we're gone? We're, we're like having mild stress. Like we won't be seeking out collections. We'll be so busy. And then like six boxes of records showed up right around the time when he was born. So it was pretty special. Wendy jumped from the analog world into the digital realm when she joined iTunes in its infancy. Getting to work at Apple was kind of like my second dream job after the first dream job of the record store. And it was like the super early days of iTunes. And iTunes had been started by engineers. And so in the early days of iTunes, they really needed like music lifers to come in and, you know, do what we do best, which is like merchandise and talk to customers and like how to do that and like digitally in the iTunes storefront, just figure out how to do that. So they brought in a lot of like major label kind of folks, but luckily they also found a lot of like crazy, you know, record store people. My first job there was um, compiling um, iTunes Essentials, which was our version of the mixtape. So we would do like Lou Reed for beginners or, you know, Neil Young 101. It was like curating and evangelizing the music that I loved so much um, just to a different audience with a different format. I was curious to find out what they thought about the current vinyl scene here in the Bay Area. It's definitely the more the merrier with record stores. Like we're two and a half blocks from one, two, three, four, go. And we're like a 10 minute walk to Stranded where we are. And um, people always kind of do the the record walk. Yeah. And it's cool because record collectors, once they're looking and digging, they get the fever and they want to keep digging. I think also different stores have different focuses. And then you also get something different from each place that you go to and you get like the um, people who own it or are working there have different knowledge as well and so if you're really interested in a whole broad spectrum of things it's really advantageous for you to go to you know a few shops if you have the time to do that within a day in general like i've felt a really good community with the other east bay record shops you know in general like it's I see people at record shows, I see people around at different events, like I see your husband often. And I think I'm also an interested person in the community as well, so I like to just kind of keep my eyes open and see what's happening around me as far as other shops and what people are doing with records. I'd like to thank Tracy, Hannah, and Wendy for taking part in this interview. As a final question, I asked if they had the resources they needed, where in the world would they like to open up a record store? Selfishly for me, because I consider your time spent in a record store immersion in that in that culture. So I'd want to open a record store like in a big city in another country, like Athens or something in Greece, where I could learn what's happening with music in that country. I think we're in a pretty good spot, although it would be really fun to own a record shop in Tokyo, I think. First of all, it would be really fun just shopping for stock for your store. So I think that I'm in the perfect place. I love Oakland and I love the people who come through our door. All age brackets, all, you know, races, all genders, everything. And I think that Oakland has such a diverse community anyway that this is really where my heart is at. I wouldn't want to do a shop anywhere else. This is Dana Berry for Vinyl Snob. In a previous episode, Dana spoke with Mike Lavella as part of the series, Confessions of a Vinyl Addict. One of the questions he asked Mike was, what's the one record you want that you don't own? Here's Mike's response from episode nine. The record I want more than any other record in the world, Alan Sherman, <laughs> the, the Jewish comedian of Hello Mata, Hello Fada fame. He, I have everything he ever did, I have all his albums, but he made a record 
for the Scott Paper Company called Music to Dispense With that was given out only to employees of Scott Paper Company. And it's, it's hilarious, and it's so rare. And I'm happy to announce that Mike now owns that record, and he's going to tell us the story of how he got it and uh, share a little bit of it with us. He joins us here in the Vinyl Snob DJ studio. Welcome, Mike. Huzzah. (laughs) Hey, I got to tell you, although I generally don't cruise um, comedy sections or spoken word at the record stores, after your interview with Dana in that episode, uh, I found myself at two record stores, and each one I went, you know, let me let me stop here at yeah, comedy. I, maybe I, maybe I can find that record for Mike. I don't know. I appreciate why, that. Thank I don't you. know why I was I wanted to do it, but for some reason I thought it would be cool to be able to get this for him. Oh yes. And apparently somebody did just that. Yes. Tell us that story. Well, uh, yeah, the vinyl snob uh, had had really just uh, you, you know it was only out for a couple of weeks, and it was at the very very next now playing night at the Little Hill Lounge in El Cerrito, going about my normal. Uh, drinking a Schlitz, going about my normal <laughs> business, and uh, walks in the door. Uh, his name is Will, and I hadn't seen him for many years. And he walked in and goes, hey, I got something for you. And, uh, you know, it's not unusual for people to lay a record on me, but it's usually something. Uh, my friend Jeffrey Boozer gave me a Billy Swan record uh, a couple months because just because he, he heard me talking about Billy Swan, you know, and, he, and he, just like for fun. And I go, oh, thank you all. And he goes, Mike, it was a dollar. Relax. Like it's just, you know, but, but I mean, people lay records on me quite a bit. So anyway, I, I opened this thing up and there was Alan Sherman, Music to Dispense With, Sealed, the most near mint copy, like probably in existence, like absolutely sealed in the original shrink wrap. You know, the corners, perfect, spine, perfectly readable, sealed. And and he hands it to me. And I just, I, you know, it, it was one of the most surreal moments of my life. I, he could have knocked me over with a feather, honestly. And he was just like, this is it, right? I'm like, uh, yeah. And uh, he had written on the, um, on the, on the, it was, gave it to me in an LP mailer, you know, and he wrote like, thank you for uh, never treating me like a little kid. When I was trying to break into like the car culture scene, you were like the only one who was ever nice to me and treated me decently. And I, I'll never forget your, you know, and and apparently I you know made some kind of impression on him. Well, he he listened to Vinyl Snob, and uh, you know, I, like like you were saying, he got caught up in this how much I wanted this record. So what he did, which is just crazy, is he figured out where the Scott Paper Company was located, which was in Pennsylvania and outside of PA, and he started calling record stores outside of where it was located to see if any. And and uh, I don't know how many stores he called before somebody goes, oh yeah yeah yeah, I have that. And uh, and and he 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 bought it and uh, and he 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 contacted the guy and paid for it and then he said, uh, oh by the way, what condition is it in? Like he didn't even like he was so excited to just find a copy. Sure. And the guy's like, oh, it's sealed. <laughs> so, oh man. Know, so to add like you know, so he walks you know like and then when he gave it to me, of course, uh, my friends are there, my fellow DJs are sitting and we're all you know we're gathered around it like uh, in Pulp Fiction or whatever. We're looking into the you know the glowing you know there's like a glow coming off of it. And we're looking at it and we're like <gasps> you know. And, of course, everyone's like, are you going to open it? I'm like, of course I'm going to open it. I can't wait to open it. You know, this record was pressed to be listened to and enjoyed. And uh, it is just perfect. Like uh, putting the needle down the first time and just not even hearing a like nothing. Just so clean, so perfect. You know, it's it's really a dream come true, you know. But, yeah. So, Will Hall, thank you very much. And uh, this record, as you mentioned in the the original interview, um, this was not released to the public. Not at all. This was... Created specifically for the Scott and one paper company. and one step further, the the gentleman who owned the record store that was talking to Will said that they 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 gave a coupon to the to the uh, 
the Scott paper people, and then you had to mail in for it. So it wasn't even like they came through the office handing them out. They gave you a coupon that you had to mail in. So how many people did that? Did that. So we really don't know how many were pressed. Uh, you know, I, I've done a lot of research on it, and it's, it's, it's you know, but, but I can tell you they almost never change hands. There's almost no history of, like, one. Uh, uh, some guy had one on Discogs, but he couldn't find it. Uh, unbeknownst <laughs> to me, several people had tried to buy it for me. Uh, including myself, I saw it on there, and I was like, "Well, you know, I'm going to contact," but but he can't find it. So, so I, I really do think not only did I get it through Vinyl Snob, thank you very much. Not only did I get it, I probably have the finest copy in the world. You know, so yeah, it's uh, you know, good good things uh, good good things come to those who wait, I guess. <laughs> um, and we're going to play a track from it now. What are we going to listen to? Oh yeah, this is uh, we're just going to we're going to go with uh, uh, making making coffee because it's uh, it's a takeoff on making whoopee, and I think that I think a lot of what people know Alan Sherman for was his parodies of famous melodies and songs. So this this really completely fits in with all that. So yeah, making coffee. All right, here we go. Alan Sherman on Vinyl Snob. <laughs> Each weekday morning at 10.15 I see my favorite vending machine It stands there waiting and percolating Just making coffee The other morning Alan Sherman on Vinyl Snob Never thought I'd actually say that. That's from the album um, Music to Dispense With and Making Coffee. He, he was not known originally as a singer, correct? Yeah, yes, exactly. He, uh, he was a writer for uh, different comedy shows, but he would, he would put on these shows in his house for his friends. He would uh, take like a famous Broadway musical, redo it all like it, with Yiddish words and you know, like, a, like a Jewish version. And uh, the setup is actually like... Uh, he has this great line where he says, like, imagine if Broadway was run by Jews. And it is. You know, <laughs> or something like that. But he, uh, yeah, he would do parodies. And it caught the attention of a lot of people, uh, one, of, one of whom was uh, Harpo Marx, who was his neighbor. And, like, they would have these parties, the Shermans and all these, you know, sort of L.A. people would, would be at his house. And uh, Harpo was like, you got you to gotta record. You got to do this. And it was a runaway hit. I mean, it sold millions of copies. It's amazing. And, it, you know, it was documented that uh, Kennedy was a fan of Alan Sherman. I mean, it's, it's like a pre-Beatles, Beatlemania. It's almost like a Sherman mania. People forget. They quickly brought out uh, My Son the Nut, uh, My Son the Celebrity. Uh, and, and also, too, it should be noted that Alan Sherman's mother was dead by the time that all these My Son the whatevers were out. coming out. But it was, you know, it was like a clever little device. Sure. And, and those albums, the My Son albums, started out when? Uh, 63. 63, and uh, music dispensed by? 66. And most, I mean, most people will recognize Alan Sherman by Hello Mother, Hello Father. Sure. And when, when was that released? That's uh, second, right, uh, 64, I believe. 64, okay. That's off the top of my head. I think so. They also made a board game, like uh, you know, the Camp Granada board game for kids. Get out of And here. there's a commercial of Alan Sherman, like, playing it with kids, which is on YouTube. I mean, it's a phenomenon. If you do a little research, it's kind of remarkable how, how popular he was. To the point, as you were just saying, the CEO of Scott Paper Company must have been a huge fan because they, they clearly— They did this. This is, this is not it's a— It's legit. Yeah, it's— it's 
it's legit. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's well recorded. Yes. Um, it's a full orchestra. Yes. Um, they had to pay him to write these songs. But as you pointed out, hilariously, thank God it's one sided. Yeah. How could you keep the parody of cups uh, going uh, for two sides? You know, in in the world of record collecting, there's really I never saw anything quite like this. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing it with sure. us. And I'm glad Vinyl Snob could I, help bring this to you and, and in your quest. At minimum, I owe you a beer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you, Mike. Mike Lavella. You can catch him on Vinyl Snob Radio as well. Go to the drop down at Vinyl Snob Radio and look under guest DJs. He'll be featured there playing some of his favorite punk records. That's all at VinylSnob.com. Always like to close out the show with a trip to the used bin and some of our favorite record stores. On this episode, we make our way to Chicago and stop in at Reckless Records, one of three stores they have in that city. They've been serving the community since opening there in 1989, following the success of their first store in the heart of Soho, opened in 1984. At their downtown Wicker Park location in Chicago, we spoke with Ben. I've been working for Reckless for just under three years as a buyer, um, but I've worked at several other stores. So I'm I'm closing in on 10 years in the, uh, the service of music. Reckless, in my opinion, is kind of rare in this day and age in that we kind of try to cast a wide net without completely trying to limit what we're able to do with serious, dedicated collectors or enthusiasts in any one specific genre. So I think we try to carry the the best representation of any genre that people are going to be looking for. You know, because at the end of the day, we're trying to take part in a healthy ecosystem that exists here in Chicago and a few other pockets in the country and elsewhere around the world, of course. I think the general philosophy of trying to bring in as much interest as possible to the widest range of people living here or traveling through, I think is consistent, but each store is certainly shaped by the neighborhood, being our downtown store or our other store in Lakeview. As a buyer, we asked if there were any transactions that stuck out in his mind, and that if on an intake, he ever came across a record and said, this one's for me. I, I don't uh, I don't sit on one specific memory. It's been fortunate in that it's all been generally positive. Uh, some memorable, some maybe you don't wish to remember. But they happen every day. That's certainly one of the enjoyable parts about working in this business. A lot of people come into these stores, not just ours, but any record store in general, for any number of reasons. Whether it's, you know, career musicians that are known all over the world or somebody that's trying to find you know, shelter out of the rain. You know what I mean? In a sense that it's kind of like uh, what libraries have become today. You know, a lot of, this is generally a safe space. You know, we keep it that way. Music's supposed to be safe and enjoyed by anyone that cares to. So that's a guidestone for, I think, most record stores. Again, this is my opinion. I think that's how I feel working here at Reckless. I mean, everyone that works at record stores has their own buying you know, philosophy is what they take home for their personal lives. You know, some people do that because they still have that direct emotional attachment to personal pieces of music. Other people look at it, I think, as a collector, you know, and you might take advantage of finding some of those titles that don't appear much in the wild, so to speak, anymore. So that's certainly a benefit, you know. Like, I personally have always kind of changing how and why I buy what. Sometimes it is that ridiculously expensive record that you can find in a bargain bin CD pile that only exists in, you know, a triple-digit LP form. 
And sometimes the allure of having the opportunity to buy that record is just uh, a fun aspect of having that opportunity. Right. So you do it, and maybe you think it's a good decision two years later. I don't know. We'll see. Our thanks to Ben at Reckless Records in Chicago for speaking with us. And that's our show. To hear the extended music version of this program, go to the episode 10 page at vinylsnob.com. And don't forget, we feature pictures of all of our interview guests on those same episode pages, along with helpful links on the recommendations page, free domestic shipping on all Vinyl Snob gear at the store, and one-hour DJ shows on Vinyl Snob Radio, featuring many of the artists interviewed here on the Pantheon Network. And of course, we spin them all from vinyl. If you have any questions about vinyl records or the stereo equipment you play them on, we'd be happy to look into it. Drop me a line, dave at vinylsnob.com. If we use it in the show, we'll send you a Vinyl Snob t-shirt and tote bag. And you can watch heads turn every time you walk into the record store. Vinyl Snob is produced at the studios of Post Audio in Sacramento, California. Our executive producer is Dana Berry, Theme music composed by Cameron Robbins. I'm Dave Whitaker. Thanks for listening. Vinyl Snub is produced by DIY and How and is part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Vinyl Snub is written by Dave Whitaker. All commentary and opinions are that of the host. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Playlists can be found at Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rockandrollarchaeology.com for more information.